0: A church is a group of Christians who assemble as an earthly embassy of Christ's heavenly kingdom to proclaim the good news and commands of Christ the King, to affirm one another as his citizens through the ordinances, and to display God's own holiness and love through a unified and diverse people in all the world, following the teaching and example of elders. Good morning, everybody. You guys awake today? It's a little gloomy outside, so you just never know. You know, some, some days are harder to get rolling. You know, get your coffee. We're here. We're going to worship. Uh, great uh, privilege to uh, open God's Word today. So if you got your Bibles, I invite you to open up to Matthew 28. That's where we're going to spend uh, some of our time. We're going to kind of bounce around and be in other places, but that'll be where we get ourselves started. Uh, today, we're going to talk about the question in our Rediscover Church series, how do we love people outside the church? Uh, Last week we talked about how do we love uh, members within the church who are different than us uh, Doing the hard work of doing that but the the good work that god has called us to do to love each other and this week uh, what does that look like when we go outside the walls of this place? What, do we, what does it look like when we engage our communities? Because we recognize, right, the world, the church exists within the world. The church exists within communities, big and small, right? We, whether it's a, a large city like Chicago or, you know, we have people here who are in Rockford on a regular basis or the bigger towns like the Caliber, out here in the middle of nowhere, Shabana, right? We exist within a community of people. And it's safe to say then that the church collectively via us individually, has a relationship then with the culture around us. The question is, what's that relationship supposed to be? How are we individually and how are we collectively, as a body, supposed to love the people around us who are outside the church? Now, we're not just talking people who... Uh, don't come to Village Bible Church in Shabbana uh, or just aren't here this morning, that sense of outside the church. We're talking about people who, uh, if we were to kind of use some of the illustrations uh, we've gone to throughout the series, they haven't put the jersey on, right? They're they are not, quote unquote, on the team. They're, they're outside uh, of the church. They're not a part of the people of God. And so to answer the question, how are we supposed to love them, because in many ways, the way that the world would say that we ought to love them is different than the way God says we ought to love them. So I'm going to talk about that a little bit, but to do so, I think it's going to be helpful for us to ask a couple of other questions. For example, what is our mission as the church? It's a good place to start. You know, well, in our small groups this week, we kind of kicked things off talking about, well, what, what is the church for and we talked about different answers that we've heard And there's all kinds of different things you'll, you'll hear And you, Some will say, well, the church is purely for the evangelism of the world That we exist 100% just to reach the lost for Christ Some will say that the church exists only for those inside the church That we are here, the church is for the saints and the saints only And there's not much, it, there may be some, but not much concern uh, About those who are outside, the church is for us Some will say the church is just for the worship of God, that uh, it's not even so much about us that we should be able to kind of come and go from different local gatherings, and it's all just about the worship of God. Now, are any of those answers wrong? No. Those answers are all right. But there's not just one answer, what is the church for? What is our mission? So I had you turn to Matthew chapter 28, Because at the end of Matthew 28, Jesus gives us what we call the Great Commission. And the, the, a commission in this sense is not, uh, you know, what do you earn as a commission for every sale that you make? It's not like, hey, the great commission that you get as a believer is the reward that you get for bringing someone into the kingdom of God. That's not what Jesus is talking about. I think we know that. The commission that he's giving us is a command or an instruction for us as his disciples to go and do a certain thing. And in this case, In Matthew 28, Jesus says that this command comes in his authority. Verse 18, he says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, he says, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. What a commission. And wrapped up in this commission is every, kind of the answers to everything that we've said. We've got the evangelism of the world. Go. Go into the world. Go to all the nations and make disciples. Okay, that's that We're going to reach the nations. Then uh, the mission doesn't stop there, though. He doesn't, he's not so concerned with saying, just get people in the door. Then he says, now you need to teach them To observe everything that I've commanded you. There's the the ministry of the church for the saints, right? As we uh, gather together, we teach each other to observe all that Christ has commanded us to do. That's not something that happens in a five-minute conversation. That's something that happens over time, over and over, continually going. Jesus taught a whole lot. And the things that Jesus taught aren't only bound up in the four gospels that we have in the New Testament, because what is all scripture? Inspired by God. Who is Jesus? God, which means the whole of his revealed word to us is Christ's word for us to adhere to and obey. It takes a long time to teach through this stuff, it takes a long time to wrestle through some of the difficult and complex passages. It's something to understand that it's another thing to live by it. So you have ministry to the world. You have ministry uh, even within the church. And then uh, this fellowship that we have with Christ, that I am with you always, This, this worship that we have, of course, it's all about Him. It's in His authority. It's in His word that we go. It's in His presence that we do these things. So none of those answers are wrong. But All of them are right, and any one of them just by itself is wrong. Because the mission of the church isn't just to go and evangelize the world. The mission of the church is also to equip the saints. The mission of the church is to pray. The mission of the church is to worship our God, is to be with him. All of those things are very true. As a matter of fact, it's from here... In Matthew 28, that we derive our mission statement as a church. I don't know how many of you know what that mission statement is, but it's just as simple as this, because we like alliteration at Village Bible Church. So our mission, we would say, is to discover, develop, and deploy disciples for Jesus Christ. Go into all the nations and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Discover. Because there are followers of Jesus Christ who are out there that right now are still walking in rebellion to Him. So we are to go and discover. Two, we're to teach them, all to observe all that God's command. commanded. We develop disciples. We develop disciples. We're doing that right here, right now. We are developing each other. We're being developed by the Word of God. We do it in our small groups, in our theology class, and the, the different ways is to strengthen and build us up so we would be fully developed disciples of Jesus Christ who then would go into the world and make disciples. That is Jesus commissioned his disciples then and there, that's obviously a mission that didn't cease to exist when the last of the apostles breathed their last and died. Well, great, the mission of the church is done. Uh, we got everyone that we could get and uh, we're just gonna ride this out until the church dies off. No, it's, it's the implication that we make disciples who make disciples who make disciples who make disciples the multiplication of discipleship. So as we look at this, it's inherent to our mission as Village Bible Church, and not just for us locally, but for the church as a whole, that we are to go out into the world and make disciples. So why do we start there? We're not talking about just the mission of the church. We're talking about how do we love people who are outside the church? Well, our mission will tell us something of how we ought to love them. Because if our mission as a church is just to be a community center that says, hey, we want to throw great events for our community, we want to be a a positive light for our community and just encourage people, if our mission as a church is we want to make people feel good about themselves, we just want to encourage people, well, that's going to change a lot of what we do. But if our mission is to go into the world and discover disciples for Jesus Christ— If our mission is to go into the world and teach people how to observe what Christ has commanded, boy, isn't that going to change how we go about doing things? Isn't that going to change the the question at play? And so what we wrestle with then is, well, how do we do these things? If Jesus has commissioned us to go, if he has commissioned us to teach, how do we do it? Some people have taken the uh, route of camouflage, if you will. Some churches will say hey, the best way to go and make disciples of the nations, the best way to reach the nations is to look as much like the nations as you possibly can. So we're going to do our very best to look like the culture around us so that when somebody who's outside the church maybe stumbles their way inside the church, they're going to be like, wow, I feel comfortable here. There's nothing that, that rubs the wrong way. There, you know, I, I feel like I can belong, so we're going to look like the world in every way we possibly can so we might reach the lost. The problem is, inherent uh, with the command that Jesus has given, is that we would be going out and not being like the world. Jesus doesn't say, go and teach the world how to be the world. He doesn't say, go and show the world how to be the world. He says, go and teach them everything that I've commanded you. And Jesus calls this some pretty radical stuff, pretty challenging things, pretty countercultural things. I mean, after all, Paul says that the spirit and the flesh are fundamentally opposed to each other, that how can we live by the spirit and give in to the flesh at the same time? They're enemies, one of another. So it doesn't make a lot of sense to go and to, to just look like the world as much as we can. So some people then say, well, if we're not to do that, maybe we need to be combative in our approach. Well, that sounds pretty abrasive just off the get-go because we, we probably wouldn't subscribe to that. But some would say, hey, you know, if camouflage isn't the answer, then we'll make people Christian by force. You're like, that just doesn't make sense. Well, for a couple hundred years in church history, it did. Go back far enough and there was a time when the church was like, well, we will Christianize the world by the sword. And by the way, we're, it's, it's showing mercy to the world. We'll make the world Christian by just killing everybody who's not Christian. It's a brutal way to think about it. And so we look back at stuff like the Crusades and we're like, okay, probably not the best route of action. But even today, while we may say we will lay down our swords, there are an awful lot of Christians that take up the sword of the tongue, the sword of typing, (laughs) We can, we can have pretty sharp weapons if we're not careful. We need to heed the wording from James that the tongue is a powerful thing. It's like a bit in a horse's mouth, a rudder on a ship, that though so small holds so much power. And, and man, there, there are some of our brothers and sisters out there who have sharpened the blade. So while we may not go with weapons into battle, we go with weapons into battle. And we start cutting people down to the knees. Just fighting and arguing, and what good does that bring about for the cause of the kingdom? Well, maybe being combative then isn't the best option, so some may argue for conformity. Opposite of camouflage, where the world, uh, the church begins to work, look like the world, conformity might say, let's just make the world look like the church. And those who would subscribe to this might be the ones who say, our greatest hope for our nation. The greatest hope for for everything in the world right now is who's in the Oval Office. Who's elected in our governments. Because if we can get the most Christian person in, then maybe we can from the top down just start to Christianize our, our nation. That's where our answer is. What happens when it doesn't work? The scriptures are clear that our one and only hope isn't in the rising and falling of kingdoms of this earth. Our one and only hope is in the person of Jesus Christ. And the scriptures are clear that we in and of ourselves as people cannot make ourselves righteous. Even though we may try over and over and over again with the greatest of efforts, you can do nothing to make yourself righteous. So what, the implementation of policies, that's going to solve the problem? the bible would say i think not i think not it's not just about making the world a more moral place it's not just about wrestling with those things saying we just want everyone to look and act alike so we're going to top down make it happen because when that doesn't work then the response of many christians is like okay the world is 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 going to hell let's get away from the world and we, we step back and we conceal ourselves from the world as best as we possibly can. We find ourselves in clusters. We remove ourselves from the public sphere because we're fearful of being corrupted by the world. If the world can't touch me, then I'll be fine. And we got to be honest with ourselves in some of those places. Because it's an easy thing to do, to run from it. But in our, our pursuit of running away from being corrupted, uh, because after all, right, the bad company corrupts good character. It's like it's come, we're like, we can justify it. But as we conceal ourselves from the world, aren't we doing the exact opposite of what Jesus has told us to do? He never said, retreat, go out into the wilderness and just stay there forever and let the world not touch you. He says, no, we ought to advance into the world. Go, go into the world. Go to the nations. Go to where people are lost and be my witnesses. Now there's places to wrestle with those things, but we should be very slow to conceal ourselves. Okay, so a response could be instead of concealing and instead of being combative, we'll just be complacent. And many churches are there. We're going to open the door and we're going to flip the lights on and then we're going to wait for God to bring people to us. We are content to wait and see. And if somebody comes, we'll minister to them. But we wait for the world to come to the church. And we're fine with that. When again, Christ has called us to go, it's not about just building bigger doorways and brighter lights to catch the attention of who's around. At night, we got those lights that are flying up in the sky like they used to, you know, saying, There's something going on here. And we're called to go and to meet people where they're at. That the church would infiltrate the world. And so we, we look at some of these causes and, and these strategies and we're like, well, we remember what Jesus says in Matthew uh, that the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. And so if we uh, conceal ourselves, if we are complacent or if we're combative or any of these strategies that we may have, that we know that the church is going to prevail because the attacks and, and the corruption of the world will not corrupt the church and we're like, "Well, wait a minute." I look at something like that, "The gates of hell will not prevail." And I'm like, "What what are gates for?" Are gates an offensive tool or a defensive tool? You don't put up gates to go attack. You put up gates to defend. And so you look at it and you're like, okay, the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. What Jesus isn't saying is that if the church just gets there and builds our our dome around us that says we can just hold the fort, let's just hold the line that the attacks of the enemy, the barrages of the enemy won't defeat us, No, he's saying that when the church goes and attacks the gates of hell, when Christians proverbially go into hell to reach and save those who are lost, the gates of hell will not prevail. It is then, when the church advances, when the church goes out into the world, that Jesus himself says, we will have fruit in the mission. The mission will bear success. What more confidence do we need as believers? Now, I recognize as somebody standing here before you that is not by nature an evangelist. I get scared, confession time, to share my faith. I get scared to have the hard conversation, to ask the tough questions. I easily cower away. I'm like, I'll let someone else do it. I'll just be nice. But what greater confidence do we have than Jesus saying, when you go into the world, and make disciples, there will be fruit. That the gates of hell won't prevail. That God has his people in every nation and corner of this earth that he is sending us to go and to preach the gospel, the good news to them. So if all these things are true, what, besides Jesus telling us to go, what would move us to do it? What ought to move you to go to your neighbor? What would move you to speak to your coworker, Your friend? Your family member? In Matthew, chapter 9, verse 35, we're told that Jesus traveled from town to town visiting all the villages and the cities and he was teaching their synagogues and he was proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and affliction and it says this, and when he saw the crowds, Jesus had compassion for them. He had compassion for them because he saw that they were harassed, they were helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. What ought to move you to share the gospel? To go into your world, whatever that is, and make disciples ought to be compassion for those who are lost. Let's say today after church you decide to go get some grub down at the cafe on, on Route 30. And you, you go and you eat a good meal cuz cafe's got good food and you're you're walking back out to your car afterwards and you see this person walking out into the middle of Route 30 as a big old semi full of corn right now comes barreling down the way. What are you going to do? You're going to sit back and just watch it happen knowing that if that person takes three more steps, they will be completely run over by that semi. Well, they make their own choices. Who am I to tell them where they should and shouldn't walk? What if they don't believe me that there's a semi coming barreling down the highway? What if they get irritated with me because I scared them when they were jolted into into some place of alertness and I don't want to freak them out? I mean, at some point, you're going to go tackle that person, aren't you? At some, you're not going to just stand there and say, "Let me just watch these events unfold," and you're not going to be moved to do that because that person is necessarily your best friend because they're a person and they're in danger. So at some point, you're going to say, "Hey, watch out! If you take another step, you're in danger." And if they're not listening to you, at some point you're going to run your tail as fast as you can in the middle of Route 30, you are going to tackle that person so they can't take another step in front of that semi. And the reality is, you probably wouldn't think twice about any of it. And what we're dealing with, with the mission that Christ has given us is of such greater significance than someone getting hit by a truck. Not to belittle that in any way. But we are talking about the eternal state of somebody's soul. And sometimes we're afraid to speak up because what if they think we're off a our, off our rocker? What if I don't know what kind of truck is barely... Well, what kind of truck's about to hit me? Well, I don't know. Well, then I must not be getting... So we keep quiet. I mean, do we love people enough? Do we actually care about people enough to share the gospel. Because if we come to a place as God's people where we are, we are content to just love those who are like us, just love those in our circles, you're not going to be moved to go into the nations by guilt alone. You're moved to go to the nations by compassion. Because Jesus himself had compassion on the people who were lost as those without a shepherd. Do we have compassion on those who are around us? So that if what we believe to be true is in fact true, would we not go? Would we not take the greatest act of love to tell someone the danger that they're in? To share the reason for the hope that you have? If what we believe to be true is true, would we not be moved to share that with someone? Does that reality not shake you to your core enough to look at another person created in the image of God and to say, I don't care enough to have the conversation? So then the question is, what exactly is our method? If our mission is to go and make disciples, if the mission is to go and discover, develop, and deploy disciples for Jesus Christ, then what's our method? And the scriptures are clear through and through as you, as you take them as a whole, that our method for making disciples is a multifaceted method. There's not just a one way that does it. So for instance, uh, the scriptures tell us that our, our method for making disciples involves our practice. It involves our practice. Because when Jesus gave the new commandment to his disciples in John chapter 3 that we talked about last week, to love one another as Christ loved us, the tangible practice of love He says is actually a very means by which we are witnessing to the world that we belong to Jesus. As we love each other, as we uh, live out our faith, that is a testimony to the world that says they must belong to Christ. Right, Matthew chapter 5, you know, we, we see Jesus say in the same way, let your light shine before others so they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. First Peter 2.12, live such good lives among the pagans, he says, that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day that he visits us. Both Jesus and Peter in those references speak to the power and influence that the practice of our faith has on the world around us. Live it out. Live it out. But as we let our light shine, right, as the, the little kid's song, this little light of mine. Oh, no, we won't sing, okay. Uh, we're gonna let it shine. We let it shine, and light shines the brightest when? In the darkness. Light's not so light when it's surrounded by a bunch of light. Turn a flashlight on this afternoon, you'll be like, I can't see it, but turn it on in the middle of the night and it'll light up the whole area so we are called to go and to let our lights shine as a city on a hill as a lamp in a room that you don't put a bowl over it and and conceal that light but that you let it shine into the darkness some of you are going to go home today singing this little light of mine and this is going to be like stuck in your head all day now and you're welcome, you're welcome for that our practice is a means by which we get to witness to the world On the flip side, our practice can sometimes hinder our witness. You've probably been there. When you're not exactly, you know, walking the way that you ought to walk and you know it, what's the last thing that you feel inclined to do? Talk to people about your faith. And what's one of the greatest criticisms that the church gets? You say one thing, you do another. You're hypocrites. Our walk can either help us or hinder us. And it matters greatly. It matters greatly because when we aren't walking with Christ, it can actually go a long way to discredit the message that we share. So, are we living above reproach? If you want to look at a place in the scriptures that kind of just hits home with the stuff, Go home today and read the book of 2 Timothy where Paul writes this young pastor to contend for the faith. Amen. I mean, he just lays it all out there. It's going to be hard. You've got to watch your walk. Confirm your message. Suffer if you must. Be gentle. Have compassion for people. But also be bold because there's an urgency. You want to look and see, well, what does it look like tangibly to live this stuff out? Go read 2 Timothy. Just read it cover to cover. It's short. A few chapters long. And capture the heart of the, the, the great apostle as he writes to a young pastor. Our witness, our practice goes a long way to confirming our witness. After all, what's the saying? Preach the gospel at all times and if necessary, use words. Right? Isn't that, isn't that the old saying in the church? Like, preach the gospel at all times and if necessary open your mouth. And sometimes we've taken that to such an extreme they are like, I don't need to open my mouth. I'm just going to treat people with kindness. I'm just going to walk with the Lord and never open my mouth. But the, the reality is at some point you've got to open your mouth. Because all those things don't tell people of their, their own rebellion against God. They don't speak of who God is and everything that God has done. They, they confirm the message that you send. But at some point you've got to open your mouth. It's Romans chapter 10. We have to share the good news. How are they going to believe in whom they've never heard? How are they going to hear unless someone's sent? We've been sent into the world to preach the good news. So our practice is part of our method. Second, our persuasion. There is a fact that when we share the gospel with the world, we are in an attempt to persuade them of what is true. We don't just believe in fairy tales. We're not just out here saying, yeah, you know, this is a great little uh, you know, folklore story that I've happened to buy into. We believe that this is true. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you believe this is true. Why? Why do you believe that this is true? We fail to try to persuade people from time to time because, well, I don't know every theory. I don't know every answer. I don't know every argument. So I don't want to get stumped and look a fool. So I'm going to just keep my mouth shut. But at some point, you examine things and something even in your own life said, no, I believe it's true. What was it? Why are you here? What is it that God did in your life and used in your life to to show you and open your eyes to the truth of the gospel, the truth of who he is. Because at the very baseline, you've got that. God has given you a tool in your arsenal to go and to share and to persuade people. Why do you believe? In Acts chapter 17, we are told if you want to turn there, you can. In Acts chapter 17, uh, Paul finds himself in the city of Athens. Athens. And as he's there, we're told that he's uh, preaching to the people and he's aware that, uh, verse 16, now while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. And so it says he reasoned. He reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and he reasoned in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. It's like, whoever I can talk to, whoever will give me an ear, I'm going to reason with them. is that not what persuasion is? It's to reason with people. Some of you love apologetics. How can I defend the faith? It's a great place to be. To reason with those... And then part of their reasoning, if you look down just a little bit, involves meeting people where they're at. So Paul is, uh, on account of his uh, ministry that he's doing in the public square and in the synagogues, he's brought into the Areopagus. Uh, Sheesh, if I could speak. Um, and he's standing in the midst of them, verse 22, and it says, he says, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. I recognize this to be true of you. You're religious people. I respect that about you. And he says, as a matter of fact, I notice here that as I pass along and observe the objects of your worship, all of these idols, he says, I found also an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. Oh, and then he says, what therefore you worship is unknown. This I proclaim to you the God who made the world and everything in it being Lord of heaven and earth does not live in temples made by man nor is he served by human hands as though he needs anything since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything and he made from one man every nation of mankind and he goes off and just tells them who is this God that you serve who's unknown but the beauty of it is Paul meets them where they're at hey I see you're a religious people I also see that you've got this idol to this unknown God let me tell you about it and he just starts telling them the glories of who God is. Meet people where they're at in life. Sometimes we expect people to come to where we're at, and sometimes God says, you know, get down on their level. With my boys at home, I don't treat them like they're 20 years old. I treat, them, I treat Pete like he's three. Sometimes I, I get down on his level when i got to talk to him about something. I, I get down eye to eye with him. And I start talking in a way that a three-year-old is going to understand what I'm saying. We can get on the level of people to meet them where they're at, to love them enough. And I'm not saying, look how high and mighty we are, that we got to humble ourselves. My example here is that we need to meet people where they are. Understand who they are. Understand what is driving them. Look for things in their lives that you can respect and value. I appreciate the fact that you're a religious people. Let me work with that. So the people in your life, whoever they may be, I respect the fact that you're hardworking. We live in a blue-collar community. Probably get a lot of that. I respect the fact that you're loyal. Let me tell you about the one who's the most loyal person I've ever met. Let me tell you about the person who went to greater lengths than we could ever go to serve us and contextualize the good news of the gospel so that others might hear it in a way that they get it. But don't sacrifice the truth in the process because part of our witness is not just persuading people. It's also to proclaim the good news because reality is reality. Reality. Just because someone may say, I don't believe in God, does that mean that God's not true? God is still who God is. Whether we recognize it, whether we admit it, whether we submit to it or not. So we proclaim the good news and we do so in a winsome way. Second Timothy, as I referenced it, uh, he write, Paul writes to, uh, to him, it says, The Lord's servant mustn't be quarrelsome, but Kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, he says, correcting his opponents with gentleness, that God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of truth. But as we witness as you take the courage to open your mouth and share the hope that you have, as you, as you work to persuade people, as you live out your life, as you proclaim the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, you do so in a winsome way that you might not build a barrier, but that you would leave room for God to do a work that he may grant them repentance. And then in all of this, please pray. Because your practice alone will not lead someone to Christ. Your persuasion alone will not lead someone to Christ. Your proclamation alone will not lead someone to saving faith in Christ. You may have the most sound reasoning, you may have the most compelling argument. You may have the most compassionate appeal. But there is a spiritual reality at work. The Bible says the people, and you and I were one, dead in our trespasses and sins, blinded by our enemy to the truth. So please pray as you proclaim, pray as you persuade pray as you practice that God would work in someone's heart. That God would open the eyes of their heart and soften it to respond in faith to Christ. Be faithful as far as it depends on you, but pray, man, as if you had nothing to do with it. Pray as if God needed to do a miracle in their life. And pray and pray and pray some more. The Lord must work to bring fruit. So finally, and I'll close with this, what's our message? Our message is one that addresses the rebellion of humanity. That God created us, he created us in his image, he created us to fellowship with him. But man has rebelled against a just and holy God. This is where it gets uncomfortable for our culture today because nobody likes to talk about sin. Nobody wants to be told that the way they're living, the things that they're doing, are not looked fondly upon by God. It can be uncomfortable. But if you want to look, everywhere you see the gospel preached, it is is accompanied with a message that humanity has fallen short. Early in the witness of uh, the church, you have those who are going out into the world and uh, right after Pentecost And even, even uh, Peter, as he begins to preach in Acts chapter 3, he, he, he brings it home to the Jews that he's preaching. He's like, you guys have guilt on your hands. You guys have sinned against God. And it's not to beat people up for the sake of beating people up. It's to help people see the reality of who we are. None of us came to a place of saving faith without recognizing that we were a sinner who sinned against a holy God who could not save ourselves but had to come in humility and repentance before a just and almighty God and say, Lord, you must save me because I cannot do it. I have sinned against you. And so, the message that we take into the world, if it is a message that does not deal with sin, it is a message that will not deal with salvation. We have to talk about rebellion. But we also talk of redemption that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That though we sinned, it was not long after sin happened that that God gave the first promise of a Messiah who would come. That while we were lost and dead in our trespasses, but God made us alive. That He works in us. That He is doing something that we could not do. And then we respond to that with repentance. Just a funny story on repentance because I think it's a, it's a funny story. There was a, a, a dark, foggy, cold winter night as this uh, battleship was sailing uh, through the ocean. And, uh, and the horizon it sees as a light flip on and and start approaching. And so the, the captain of the, ship, the battleship sends to his radio operator and says, send a message uh, to that light to tell them to shift their course 20 degrees to the south. So they, they send a message and they say exactly that and they get a response back from the light and says, no, uh, negative, you adjust your course 20 degrees to the north. And the captain's kind of getting frustrated at this point. And he says, send the message back. No, you must change your course 20 degrees to the south. Uh, we are a battleship. And a pause happens. And then the response comes back, negative. Change your course 20 degrees. I am a lighthouse. And it's amazing how the tune changes. And it's a funny example, but we are called to make a course correction. And in our sin and in our rebellion, we want to shout out to God, God, change course, so that we can stay on our course. And the reality is, the response back from God is, and in one sense, who do you think you are to say that? Am I not God? Am I not the one who created all things from the word of my mouth? Am I not the God who, by the power of my word, upholds the whole universe? Change course. Change course. That's what repentance is. It's a course change. It's a course change that starts in our minds and in our hearts and leads to our lives. And so there's a popular opinion out there in our culture today that God, though he loves sinners, he doesn't care about their sin. He'll save people and let them go on living as they've lived, and there's no repentance in that. That in my anger, if I have anger, I'm not called to continue to live in my anger and praise God for his forgiveness. He calls me to have control of myself. He calls me to honor him as God. He calls us to teach people to observe everything he's commanded us. It means we don't get to pick and choose what's comfortable, what's easy. It means we submit to the almighty creator God. And we continue to do so in our lives. So repentance is learning to say, I, I recognize that my sin is a sin. And I turn from it. And I go to Christ. And by His power, my old self is now gone. And my new has come. So I don't live in the same manner that I used to live. We call people to walk in a newness of life, Right? Not an oldness of life with a newness of salvation. No, salvation brings about a newness of life. And finally, in our message, there's the beautiful message of reconciliation. We often think of evangelism as the pursuit of getting people to heaven. Ah, my neighbor, I'd love for them to, to come to saving faith so they can go to heaven someday we think of our loved ones and we think, man, if they, if they were to pass right now, I know they'll spend an eternity in hell. I'd love for them to be in heaven with me one day. And well, that's, that's great and we, we love that. The reality is, is it's more about a reconciliation to God than it is just getting people to heaven. John uh, seventeen three, Jesus says eternal life is this. Not that they go to heaven, but that they know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you've sent. We're told in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul says that we have been given as God's people the ministry of reconciliation. we God's reconciling the world to himself through Christ Jesus. And he says, therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. So the appeal is this, I implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Because at the end of the day, God is the greatest glory. He is the greatest good. He is the greatest prize of our faith. God is not a means to an end. God is not just, uh, the cross is not just our ticket out of hell. Our salvation is the fact that we get to know the one and only true God. The fact of our salvation is that we get to have fellowship with him where that fellowship was broken in the very beginning. Take the, book, the end of the book from cover to cover. The beginning says God created. We broke the fellowship. The end of it is a marriage feast in heaven where we are again reunited with that God in a beautiful, unending fellowship and, and intimacy with our God. It's not just about getting people to heaven. It's about getting people to God. So we bear, you and I, the ministry of reconciliation. That's what God's given us, a role that he's called us to do. So we ought to go and and love people well enough that the greatest good we can do is share the good news of Jesus Christ. To be willing to have an honest conversation. Some of you might be uh, familiar with uh, Penn and Teller. Uh, the famous magicians, I don't know how much they're doing uh, nowadays, but you've heard of Penn and Teller and um, Penn Gillette, one of the guys uh, after one of his shows, he, he, he's got a video that he put up on YouTube about it, and he talked about how after one of his shows, uh, they go out and they, they kind of spend time with the crowd and, and are chatting, uh, having a good time, just kind of talking. And he said he, he had a conversation with this one guy who was standing kind of off to the side. And they were talking for a while about the show. He says the guy was real, real like genuinely complimentary of, of everything that he'd seen. Like, what a great show. So kind, so genuine. Um, and before he left, he, the, this guy took out a, one of those small, like pocket sized Gideon's Bibles and he, he gave it to him. He said, I, I wrote a note in the cover. I, I just really I want to give this to you. And um, shared a little bit of his faith and, and why he was doing it. And um, Penn uh, Gillette, just you know, is a, is a devout atheist publicly spoken atheist. And as he shares this uh, video talking about his experience, he says, you know, as an atheist, I've never respected people who won't proselytize, who who won't share the gospel. I've never respected it. And he says it's because if, if what you believe is to be true, is that there's a heaven and there's a hell, and you believe that there are people that are on a path to hell right now, he's like, I don't believe any of it, but... If that's what you really believe, then how much do you have to hate the people around you to not share the gospel? And I remember hearing that years ago, and man, that just stuck one in my heart. You talk about God speaking through unlikely people, God speaking through an atheist, someone who denies his very existence, saying, how much do you have to hate people around you to not Share the good news. Guys, are we moved to the core of who we are with compassion for the people who live in the houses next to us? The people we work with? The people we spend time with? Our family, our friends? Are we moved enough in love for them to share the gospel? There's a lot we could say about how we love outsiders, but it is not the greatest way we can love people outside the church to invite them into saving faith, redemption, salvation, and invite them in.